Hi, welcome to the BJ Himong podcast. Although virtual this year, the ASH 2020 meeting has still provided us with many updates in the field of lymphoma. Today, we're joined by two leading clinicians, Graham Collins and Wendy Osborne, to discuss the latest updates in targeted therapies for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, CNS prophylaxis, CAR-T therapy, BTK inhibition in mantle cell lymphoma, the management of Hodgkin's lymphoma, and more. Okay, well, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us uh, for this lymphoma session post-ASH for VJ Hemonk. Uh, I'm delighted to be um, joined by uh, Dr. Wendy Osborne, uh, who is a consultant hematologist from Newcastle. My name's uh, Dr. Graham Collins, a hematologist and lymphoma lead from uh, Oxford. Uh, so, Wendy, let, let's... Uh, dive straight in shall we to diffuse large b um i guess perhaps slightly disappointing there were no big trials that were reported um but we did see some interesting uh, data i think on bispecifics what was your take on that so i think we're all um probably even more excited about bispecifics now than prior to attending the uh, sessions at ash i mean the bispecifics uh, which work with a cd3 cd20 so bringing those t cells together to have um tumor tumor target and tumor cell death they appear to be efficacious and there were four uh, bispecifics that were presented um and you know one of them was even used in a frontline setting in older patients so the mosin was used in that setting and i think that really what was so encouraging about the bispecific data were uh, the, the safety, we know that they do cause um, cytokine release syndrome, we know that they do cause tumor lysis syndrome, but uh, they there didn't seem to be much in the way of neurotoxicity, which we worry with um, with using this sort of immune effector mechanism. And my feeling was that I want to see longer term follow up, but really quite encouraged by this off the shelf treatment for patients, mainly used in a relapsed refractory setting. Mm. I, yeah, I was quite struck by the fairly consistent CMR rate of about 50% in high grade, uh, at least in the pre-CAR T setting, which was, you know, really good, actually, I think, wasn't it? Because I guess we're all after that holy grail of CRs in these um, difficult patients. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that so was interesting. And there were some interesting strategies, weren't there? Like, you know, one of them, I think it's the glifitamab, was using a subcut administration, which seems to, you know, maybe be associated with reduced toxicity. Then there was this step-up dosing that seems another way of reducing the toxicity so it's interesting um, uh, strategies I guess that, yeah, that, uh, I, yeah I think they've recognized that you know one of the main thing is trying to reduce the toxicity I think we're all happy that they are efficacious and you know the, the glyphitimab being given sort of a day minus seven of binatuzumab as well mm -hmm. to try and block yeah. that CD20 to try and mitigate the CRS risk um, so you know all all quite um, different often in terms of, of, of how they were given, whether it was subcut, whether it was step-up dosing, but, uh, but yet very similar in terms of efficacy. And then this often led to a lot of debate and in the question and answer sessions, this um, for and against bispecific versus CAR-T. And I think that this debate will continue uh, until we have longer follow-up data because they're both very different and both I think have pros and cons in whichever approach you use. Mm. And talking about CAR-T data, we saw some of the Zuma 12 uh, data, which was quite interesting, wasn't it? Using CAR-T in that high risk setting. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so, so I think 
Um, really interesting. I mean, these data mean small numbers and patients with the Zuma 12 had to be both high risk and they had to be IPET2 positive. So they were given two cycles of standard R-CHOP treatment. And if they were IPET2 positive, then they were um, given uh, Axicel as part of the trial protocol. I think we need to be cautious that these patients truly are high risk. So, you know, half of these patients were Dovil score of four. So we don't know what that means. That may be that that's a, a false positive. Uh, we don't know what the partner genes were in the double hit patients who were considered high risk. So, uh, so I think that, you know, a, a brave strategy uh, for how they selected these high risk patients, but it makes sense. We know that these patients often don't do well with our CHOP. So, uh, so I, I thought that these data were really interesting yeah yeah absolutely and one of the really interesting uh things i thought in diffuse large b this year was the sort of very controversial area of cns prophylaxis um which is always seems to get people's um hearts racing and opinions <laughs> spouting um me no less than anyone else i guess um and there were two very interesting presentations weren't there of retrospective analyses with all the caveats that they come with uh, looking at the efficacy of intravenous high-dose methotrexate um, in high-risk patients with frontline diffuse large B uh, treated with uh, intravenous high-dose methotrexate. And I guess the sort of you know, take-home message from both of those was it didn't seem to be associated with uh, reduced CNS relapse rate. So, I mean, Wendy, what, will this change what you do in Newcastle? Or, um, yeah, so, so I think, I mean, we've been arguing oh, well, for years, it feels like, about the benefits of, of uh, CNS prophylaxis. And we know who the high-risk patients are. I think that's clear. You know, we're using the CNS IPR. We know who the high-risk are. But we don't know if it is beneficial to give any intrathecal, any intravenous methotrexate. Uh, the recent good practice paper led by Pam Mackay and colleagues from the BSH has been really helpful. And their conclusion was that we should actually move away from intrathecal and start using intravenous uh, methotrexate as a prophylaxis. And there has then been arguments about whether we give it intercalated or whether we give it at end of treatment. With my concern, giving it intercalated is causing delay of the proven RCHOP therapy. And we know data to show that it does cause a delay. So our practice at the moment in Newcastle is to give it at end of treatment. Now, these two data sets from ASH, you know, one showing no benefit, no difference between IV or IT, and then the other one showing actually no benefit from the IV methotrexate. But there were some uh, problems with this retrospective data. There were um, when when you looked at how the data were collected and how you know in one of them a third of the patients who had a high CNS IPI didn't receive any prophylaxis anyway. So. So having analysed the data, I think that probably this won't change our practice. Um, so we would still discuss the risks and benefits with the patients with high CNS IPI and give it at end of treatment. I'm still not sure whether I'm fully a believer that it's doing of any benefit, but you have to be brave to, to stop it completely. Uh, but I'm very cautious about giving it to patients over the age of 70 because it does cause harm and there's definitely no evidence that it causes good. So it was very controversial and there was certainly a lot of discussion over Twitter following those two presentations, I think. 
Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And I was interested with the reactions. You know, I think they ranged from, therefore, we should stop giving CNS prophylaxis to actually we need to give more CNS prophylaxis because what we're giving isn't enough. And then probably the majority reaction, which I think is what you're saying, Wendy, and certainly is where I am with it, is that, look, you know, these are abstracts, retrospective. You know, we haven't even seen a peer-reviewed paper yet. So we, we need to wait, you know, so, and, it, and it's, as you say, you've got to be brave, haven't you, to stop something that you believe is, might be, at least might be preventing uh, a, a really catastrophic um, complication of. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think was really important is that I think that we know how important that first, that our CHOP treatment is and making sure we're getting dose intensity right for that. Um, and obviously in some of the, these retrospective data they didn't talk about what the true dose density achieved of the RCHOP was which is important but you know uh, there's so many confounding variables so it's for me it's too early to change although I'm sure that some people have looked at these presentations and decided they're stopping all CNS prophylaxis. Yeah and actually one a case I've been thinking about just this week I, I think these this data has influenced me because you know this was a 72 year old so you know over the sort of age not there's an age cut off but you know over the age that perhaps we feel comfortable giving this with who really had quite difficult um you know stage four disease uh, involved uterine involved the uterus so you know many would regard that as quite a high risk site but actually she's done quite poorly during the R chop and is quite deconditioned um, and she was heading for IV methotrexate that was the sort of decision at the MDT at diagnosis but I think now actually we almost certainly won't and a part of that is uh, I think from my perspective is slightly influenced by this data saying if there is a benefit it's probably not huge um, and you're right it can cause harm can't it in some patients so mm. yeah Interesting. Um, so perhaps what about sticking with the theme of you know, aggressive lymphomas? Um, there was a randomized trial presented uh, with T-cell lymphoma, which is a rarity and really nice to see. I mean, it was brilliant. I thought fantastic of the LISA group to run a large uh, randomized tr trial of um, CHOP versus romidepsin CHOP. Uh, but a negative outcome. I mean, was there anything we can take away from that trial, do you think, Wendy? Well, first of all, I think it's really important that we present these negative trials because I think sometimes they're brushed under the carpet and they're still valuable. Uh, I think that what we're there was some suggestion in the presentation that maybe the angioneoblastic patients did have some response from it. Uh, I think that the numbers were too small for that. Um, Really, my, my feeling is, is that I think it's with such a rare disease, and now we know it isn't just one disease, we know all of the different subtypes behave in often a very different way, that probably we're going to have to start looking at trials, looking at different uh, the subtypes of the T-cell lymphoma. So, you know, the, for example, the oral azacytidine data that were presented in combination with CHOP uh, there was a suggestion that maybe T follicular helper cell subtypes should be again managed in a different way. So if we're now going to design trials with different subtypes of an already rare disease, it's going to have such large international collaboration. And really my take home is, you know, it's difficult to do a trial in T cell lymphoma. We need to get those numbers up, particularly with all of these different subtypes. And therefore we'll need to work internationally to get to try and find an improvement in this otherwise very worrying disease.
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just to plug, there is an international rare cancer initiative that um, uh, Matt Ahern from Leicester has helped set up. And I think that's brilliant, isn't it? To, as you say, get this international collaboration. Um, and how about the, there was a much smaller study, wasn't there, combining CHOP with oral azacitidine. Um, interesting concept. Um, do you think that's got legs? Yeah, I think an interesting concept, and does it have legs? I do think that. I mean, there was maybe 20 patients in this trial, so small numbers, but a response rate, of a very high, unexpectedly high response rate. And so for me, this was a signal, and my understanding is that this is being taken into uh, the the next um, Alliance study uh, looking at uh, CHOP plus oral azacitidine because, you know, the responses were better than we would have thought for this group of patients. Yeah, yeah. And again, I guess, again, that would be, it was quite enriched, wasn't it, I think, for TFH lymphomas, that, and you do wonder if you, that should be really where this uh, drug is, finds its home with the, uh, you know, the, the myeloid type mutations, TEP2 and IDH. I mean, it makes sense biologically, doesn't it? And this is how pulling out that subgroup within, uh, within the different trials is the answer, because, you know, targeting the different biological um approaches does make sense and you know with these responses it was certainly something that I would agree that we would you know would should be taking forward mm, yeah and there was a very nice wasn't there retrospective presentation or retrospective study um, on a um, uh, allografting in uh, t-cell lymphoma um, and I, I guess the bit that struck me was the very small number of patients who had hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, but, you know, about a 50% long-term survival, which is better, to the, better than I've ever sort of seen. And my own limited experience of that disease is it's horrendous. Um, but there are a lot more patients than that. Um, it, does that influence, you know, where you see the role of allografting, Wendy, in T-cell lymphoma? So, so, I mean... <sighs> I mean, these, these data were good because of the numbers. I mean, there were 500 patients and uh, I think that maybe more than 250 were taken into allo in a CR and the rest in a partial response. And so that in itself answered one question is, should we be taking PR patients into allo? And my conclusion from these retrospective data would be yes, because, you know, we're still seeing that uh, graph versus uh, lymphoma effect uh, so therefore taking them in an, in a PR uh, makes sense as we would with a Hodgkin lymphoma patient for example uh, and again I mean if you look at the data for hepatosplenic t-cell internationally it is poor and the outcomes are poor and there could be an argument would you put a patient through such an intensive procedure as an allo for such an aggressive and poor outcome when you're consenting the patients so again when we looked at that subgroup in these retrospective data it was better than I thought it would be. So, so my practice still would be to try and take a, a hepatosplenic T-cell in frontline to allo, whereas for other T-cells, I would consolidate with auto and only allo them in a relapsed refractory setting. And it probably hasn't changed my practice, but it's given more information when we're talking to our patients about allo and about the consent process. So I thought this was a really helpful presentation. Mm, absolutely. I was quite struck by the quite high percentage of patients who were having their allo without having had an auto first, though. It did make me think in the US, is that more of a accepted yeah. practice? Because like you, I ne would nearly always autograph first, apart from the rare, very aggressive subtypes. Um, so I did wonder if maybe that's just a difference in, yeah. in 
uh, practice. And was I, w- I was surprised by that as well, because, you yeah. know, I think that there's always so much argument about do you auto up front or not? And there's many people who don't believe in that approach. Uh, so, you know, I, it, it was surprising that so many patients actually allowed up front for, mm. for, for this. So, um, but, you know, th- again, this shows the importance of collecting these data. And obviously, if we could start to collect it prospectively, then, you know, it's more accurate and we could have more uh informed uh, discussions with our patients mm, yeah absolutely uh, and just briefly on Burkitt lymphoma I mean it was great to see this massive data set um, that uh, had been collected really across the globe US and XUS was the way it was sort of split um, very nice in validating the Burkitt lymphoma IPI that they previously described but you know I think they're making really good progress on identifying a a high-risk group of Burkitt, so over 40, LDH over three times upper limit of normal, CNS involvement, um, uh, you know, which I thought was really helpful. Uh, I think performance status two or more was the other criteria. Um, Any other sort of take-homes that you took from that data, Wendy? So, um, again, you know, a a rare disease, we maybe see one patient a year in Newcastle with Burkitt lymphoma, and our standard approach is our Codoxm IVAC, and I think that there's been some concern as to um as to whether you know we know that in the us that they use a lot of dar epoch and there were other data presented about burkitt showing that the outcomes were equivalent and actually there was less cns relapse in the patients who had the codox mivac so so i think that really from the burkitt data presented at ash uh, the the useful things were this prognostic index which seems more uh, which has been validated and is more accurate than just the standard ipi so again useful to discuss with patients and second uh, I, I think continuing with the codox m ivac approach particularly for those cns risk patients and what we need and is actually open and recruiting is a randomized study for us to see whether uh, DR epoch which is much less toxic and better tolerated is as equivalent uh, compared to codox m Mm, yeah, it was. That's a really good outcome of that study, isn't it? Because I think some people may have even said it's not really um, ethical, you know, to randomise. But I think that you know that the data suggests yes, it is. You know, it's there is a, um, you know, it is unclear which is better um, if if one of them is better. So yeah. So I think it's made that study more relevant than ever. So again, when we're thinking about what we're bringing home for the UK, uh, when having looked at all of these data, you know, really wanting to put patients into this trial, knowing that both are efficacious yeah absolutely uh, so moving on to indolent non-hodgkin lymphoma uh, a reasonable amount presented there i thought again some more data on car t cell looking very active um, do, do you think it's going to find a home in indolent lymphoma wendy Yes, I do. Um, so Zuma 5 data were presented where indolent, but mainly uh, patients with follicular within the study and Karen Jacobson, I think, presented that. And again, it looks very efficacious. I think that um, that this could be an interesting uh area as to whether bispecifics or CAR T, you know, they're both, you know, on, on the starting line at the same time, really, we're looking at this, this data coming through uh at a similar time for both indolent showing 
for both biospecifics and CAR-T really effective. And as I've mentioned earlier, the pros and cons of each approach. So, so I think, you know, we always think of indolent as easy to manage until we've got that patient who's just on their third relapse or a pod 24 early relapse, and we need to have better outcomes for them. So, so I was quite excited by the, the Zuma 5 data, to be honest. Mm. Um, and I really want to look at longer follow-up for that and compare that with the biospecific data. Yeah, I'd be really interested as well if when, you know, the, the um, CAR-T does get a license in relapsed indolent and are, you know, nice or whoever whoever looks at the data to fund it, um, you know, how are they going to define, because presumably they'll define some sort of high risk. And that's always the thing, isn't it, is how do you define high risk follicular? Will it be pod 24s? Will it be double refractories? Uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be fascinated to see what the um, criteria is for us using them. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think, you know, as they have with our currently available commercial CAR-T, they in NHS England initially looked very much on the criteria within the trial. So they'll probably be looking as well at the Zuma 5 criteria. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that CAR-T is not without toxicity. So we do have to be mindful that we are selecting the right patients and not you know, maybe giving it to patients who could have gone on with, you know, a good progression free time mm. with much lower risk treatment. So this yeah. is going to be, I think, quite a clinical dilemma if it does get approved. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think we saw some very interesting data um, in mantle cell lymphoma in particular with the LOXO uh, agent, which is a, a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, um, which very Im much impressed me. I thought really quite good response rates for a BTK inhibitor failed uh, population. And, and I find, Wendy, that post-BTK inhibitor space very challenging. Um, I mean, how, what's your sort of go-to at the moment for post for BTK failures uh, with mantle, and do you think this so, drug might find a role? So, I think I was I was really surprised by these data. If I'm honest, you know, it doesn't make sense that somebody who's failed a BTK then goes on and has this non-covalent BTK and has such a good response. And almost everybody in the trial had failed a previous BTK. There were, you know, sixty odd patients, so reasonable numbers. So. I was, this was an example of, you know, I was really excited and encouraged by this. I, um, I know that you've got this trial open in Oxford. I think it's, you know, really, you know, well tolerated with good efficacy. At the moment, what do we do? We would try and tend to give them often the RBAC regime and then take them to ALO if they're fit enough. Uh, you know, I think mantle cell is becoming... Um, a disease because it's so variable you know you have the patients have really indolent disease which never causes any problem and then these patients with awful aggressive blastoid disease who you know you want to know about almost up front and I think mantle cell lymphoma management is changing and I think you know we're wanting to know their p53 status up front would that lead us to maybe use more of an intensive allo approach up front which I know is done in some centers and then in a relapsed refractory setting we've got trial options um, but also I think CAR-T uh, we know that they look really encouraging um, you know the uh, Brexicaptogen data for mantle cell looks you know fantastic in terms of response rates and uh, ASH this year the lysocell data were presented for mantle cell again really impressive um, similar response rates uh, with often can be given in an outpatient setting. So I think mantle cell particularly 
was a was of real great interest this year at Ash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a disease where, I, you know, I would predict, as I think you're saying, Wendy, as well, CAR T's are really going to have an impact. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll be able to use them fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope so. Mm. Okay, and then moving on to the mighty Hodgkin, um, uh, you're in my favourite uh, <laughs> lymphoma entity. Um, I mean, again, no big sort of clinical trials presented, but there was some very interesting follow-up data um, on the AHL 2011. I mean, you know, really good results. I mean, long-term progression-free survival of 87% in both the standard and the experimental arm, with the experimental arm basically being a pet-driven de-escalation from escalated BCOP to ABVD, although I think Lisa now de-escalate to AVD um, pretty much routinely. Um, some interesting fertility data though, Wendy, is that going to influence how you um, might use that strategy? Mm. Yeah, I mean, when we're thinking about changing practice, probably these longer term follow-up will change and has actually changed my practice just since it's been presented. Because to be honest, for most of our advanced Hodgkin, we tend to in Newcastle use an HD18 approach for most patients because we know that if they are PET negative, so Dover 1, 2 or 3, we would then go on and give them only four cycles of escalated BACOP. So it's not common that we would consider um, saying to a patient, okay, you're PET negative after two BACOPs. Your choices are either six more weeks of treatment or four months of treatment with ABVD, as in the AHL 2011 study. I think the main difference would be when we're thinking about fertility, because it's the fertility, particularly young women, where when we have the discussion about HD18 versus a rathal approach up front, although because of efficacy, we tend to move more to HD18, it's the concern about the efficacy and the fertility for patients. So what these data showed were that, you know, they, they measured um, markers of promet premature ovarian insufficiency and they showed there was a five times reduction in POI uh, compared to the standard arm which patients ended up having six escalated BACOPs so you know not the four that you do can get for 75% of patients in HD18. So now if I've got somebody with high risk disease I would be keen to start with escalated BACOP If they reach that PET2 negativity, which remember is 140% of liver, it's different. So it's like a Dovil four and a half and five is is a positive. Then I would now and have de-escalated to four AVDs, which is what I know the the Lisa group are doing to try and reduce their their fertility um, uh, toxicity. And again, this is really useful data to be able to talk to patients about in clinic with this further follow up. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've certainly used that strategy in patients who didn't tolerate the two escalated BCOP DACs well. Uh, you know, I was actually quite worried about a particular patient who was admitted for sepsis on each cycle. And I was really nervous. It was, as she was a slightly older patient, really nervous about giving two more. And so I, I just found the efficacy data very reassuring that uh, de-escalating, uh, you know, I could be as upbeat and optimistic that it was um, associated with a good outcome. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, and you know, I, I think that the 80 80- Seven percent efficacy is is obviously good. You could argue it's not as good as HD eighteen. There's, there's like ninety two percent. But what I think you know we've got to remember is that um, 
that is the real higher risk patients. It's because they've counted the Dovil score as slightly higher for their positivity. So you would expect it to be a bit lower. Uh, but again, having all of these information and data to talk to patients about uh, and about weighing off maybe losing a few percent PFS in order to try and preserve fertility is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and older patients with Hodgkin, I mean, we're, we're aware that that's an area of real unmet need um, with patients struggling sometimes to get uh, ABVD-like treatments into them. Um, you know, we as a UK, we delivered on the brevity study, so brentoximab monotherapy and those not deemed uh, suitable for standard um, combination chemotherapy. And the outcomes were, I think it's fair to say, fairly disappointing. But interesting results using brentoximab in combination, I thought. Um, uh, I mean, again, do you, it's always difficult, isn't it? Because we can't use it at the moment um, in combination up front. But um, uh, what would your predictions be? Do you think that's going to have an impact as an agent in these patients? I think I think possibly it is. Um, I think that the data presented were encouraging with brentuximab used with dacarbazine and with nivolumab as well. Um, it was interesting that when used in combination with bendamustine, that was too toxic, and I think they either had to close that arm or you know they certainly didn't recruit further into that arm. But the efficacy was better than we would have thought, and obviously, as you said, with single agent brentuximab, we were disappointed with the outcome from brevity, although they they were really high risk patients. That that went into that study. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think using these uh, targeted therapies, whether it be checkpoint inhibition or uh, um, antibody drug conjugate upfront, I think will be of benefit to patients because it's difficult to, to tolerate ABVD uh, for many patients once they get 70 or over. And then we have this big discussion in the MDT about what do we give them? And certainly we've started to follow the Glasgow regime of using ACOP, where Pam Mackay uh, developed, developed that, so sort of dose-reduced dose BACOP essentially without the BLEA or atopicide. And, and these data look encouraging, all those small numbers. But I think if in the future we're able to use a targeted agent up front, uh, then that could be a better outcome for these patients because we know that they do badly, our patients with older Hodgkin lymphoma. Mm, absolutely. And I guess that leads on to the to the role of checkpoint inhibition, where, you know, at each conference you seem to get more and more data on checkpoint inhibition in Hodgkin in various you know, guises. So there was the longer term follow up of the Neval study using it frontline, which um, had in early unfavorable patients where they had, I think it was, you know, there were two cohorts. One was a 98% progression free survival and the other was 100%, albeit every patient uh, had radiotherapy. Um, you know, incredibly good data. Then there was the Pembrolizumab GVD first relapse data, um, over 90% CMR rates, albeit in a relatively small number of patients. I mean, incredibly um, impressive. Um, I, I mean, you know, how can we how can we incorporate these agents properly, Wendy? It sort of seems, you know, that us using them post auto, post BV, single agent. I, I worry we're behind the curve in the UK. Not, not that we can do anything else as it's not licensed, but, but where, where should we, we really trying to use these, do you think? I mean, the the study you mentioned, the Pembro plus the GVD. I mean, those those outcome were really impressive. Alison Moscovich mm. presented that, and I mean, they use liposomal doxorubicin. I, I mean, that will add significantly to the cost. Mm. But I think really what what we you know we're putting a lot of people through an auto transplant and the question for me is is this necessary do we really need to have that toxicity for treatment could we bring 
checkpoint inhibition in with that, you know, second line treatment, maybe with maintenance to prevent some patients going to auto. Now, the question for me is how we select which patients could could avoid this. And I know that um, that there are ongoing studies in the US where they're using maintenance rather than auto, autologous stem cell transplant. But uh, I think checkpoint inhibition frontline um, and, you know, I know with the with the Avenue study, I think that now that we are seeing more data, it is much more reassuring. I think to start with, because we get such good outcomes for so many patients with, with frontline treatment, we've just talked about those high percentage rates. It's very, it, it, you have to be quite cautious, I think, bringing something in frontline, but these window studies are showing such fantastic outcomes. So I think that these look encouraging, and particularly for me, frontline, for the patients who can't tolerate the standard, you know, HD18 approaches, so the older patients bringing in a front line. And then I would be keen to bring them in second line for those patients trying to avoid, avoid an auto for them. That would probably be where I would see them. I don't yeah. know what your thoughts. Yeah, I, I, so I was also struck by, I think it was a poster that um, was reporting on heart failure, yeah. late effects in patients who had only had ABVD versus those that had also had mediastinal radiotherapy. And it was something like a 2% 10-year heart failure risk with ABVD, which, okay, it's not huge, but it's one in 50 and it's a devastating complication. It was doubled if you had radiotherapy. But I guess it, it did, again, make me think that, you know, as a hematologist like you who prescribes this chemo all day, every day, we are doing damage. Now, you know, we're also curing a lot of people um, and the risk benefit is very much for benefit in giving the chemo. But it did make me think, you know, even in younger patients, I still think there may be a role somehow uh, in incorporating checkpoint inhibition up front to try and reduce the chemo burden. But of course, these agents have their own toxicity profiles. So, um, <laughs> you know, as well as sharing the um, uh, sort of mechanism of action out, you're also sharing the toxicities out. And it's it's hard, I think, to know exactly how we're going to benefit um, young frontline patients with this approach. But I think there may be a role in the higher risk patients. But like you, Wendy, I was very struck with the Pembro GVD. And, you know, if that's, a, I mean, it was, I think it was about 34 patients. It was quite small numbers. But you know, if I've just, I've just never seen that CMR rate. It was 92% or something, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. And you sort of think, well, if you're going to get that many patients, even if you're consolidating them with aloe, yeah. um, a few of them did get the brentuximab maintenance as per the Athera approach. I don't know what that is going to um, mm -hmm. add, but, you know, a 92% CMR, it makes us think, you know, our standard current second line treatments aren't achieving that. And we, you know, yeah. We do need to improve upon that. But as you say, in the UK, apart from in a trial setting, we, we, we can't bring them in earlier than third line at the moment. Yeah. And I guess it did. I mean, I know we always say it, but it really did scream out to me, come on, you know, we need a randomized trial in that first relapse setting because it's not that uncommon around the world, particularly uh, relapsed Hodgkin's. Um, it's probably commoner than frontline T-cell. 
Um, and there we saw the Lisa Group deliver on the Romy Chop study. So, you know, I, I, we can do it as a global community, at least. So it's, yeah, it's frustrating that we don't have that sort of data to support further approvals. But um, yeah, but no, uh, fascinating data. Um, uh, Wendy, look, it's been a really interesting conversation and thank you very much um, for your thoughts and, um, you know, applying it to UK practice. I think it's been a fascinating ash and, um, you know, it's always great, isn't it, to mull over the data and see where things are going to land. Um, you know, at ASH this year, we had some controversy with the high-dose methotrexate CNS prophylaxis. We saw some interesting results from new agents, the LOXO study, um, some sort of watch this space data, such as the oral azocytidine and CHOP uh, data in frontline peripheral T-cell lymphoma, um, and some interesting long-term follow-up from uh, large clinical studies such as the AHL 2011. And I think, although it, you know, it's, it's hard, isn't it, to put your finger on and say this was practice changing, I think a lot of this is practice informing and does give us more data to discuss these things with our patients um, who ultimately are the people we're subjecting these treatments on. So, um, you know, I think it has been an incredibly uh, useful ash despite it being virtual. Um, and uh, we all missed, I'm sure, bumping into our friends uh, for a coffee. Uh, but Wendy, thank you again uh, for you. joining me. And thank you, Vijay Hemonk, for running this session. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest Hemonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from Ash 2020, visit vjhemonk.com. Follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk to join in the conversation.